Keep everybody in line today. Yeah. Hey, uh, just so you know, uh, we are going to begin the process of moving away from a bulletin. And so I'm telling you that now so that when it comes, you guys won't go into shock. Um, and we're really going to try to push you towards the internet. The truth of the matter is there's more going on at Grace than we can put in the bulletin anyway. Uh, it's just, it's archaic that we are printing and spending thousands of dollars a year on bulletin. So in the next few months, you're going to see the bulletin go away. So my encouragement to you is just to begin getting in the habit of just going online and seeing all the great things that are going on at Grace and checking in there. I uh, want to remind you there's no um, Tuesdays at Grace this week because of the holiday weekend. So if you show up Tuesday and nobody's here, just make it an opportunity to sit in your car and pray for us. Um, but the doors will be locked. So, um, And then one other thing that's in the bulletin that I just want to remind you of, this Saturday uh, at 10 a.m., uh, we're doing something called Prayer Circles. Uh, Pam Bologna has really just, God has captured her heart, and she wants to help us to foster a culture of prayer. And so she wanted to lead this. And so we're going to meet in the parking lot 10 a.m. next Saturday and just gather in circles and pray for the campus and pray for the church and pray for Covenant Community Care and pray for uh, the Counseling Center. But we're just going to gather in circles, and we're going to pray uh, so it's going to be just, you know, all you need to do is show up and we'll, we'll lead the whole thing. But we would love for you to be here for that. Grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're well on our way through a series in Luke. And the section that we're reading today kind of marks a shift in the gospel narrative that Luke is writing. We're kind of moving to a, a next phase, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is beginning the process in, in this section of scripture of building his leadership team. He's been ministering in word and in deed and the crowds have gathered. We see that over and over in Luke that people have come from all over Israel and even outside of Israel to see what Jesus is doing. And, and there's this group of people within that crowd. There's a group of people who have decided, I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And in that culture, they would say, I want to be a, a disciple of Jesus. So we have these crowds. Then we have disciples of Jesus. And then what we're going to see is Jesus goes to the, to the mountain. He prays all night and he comes down from the mountain and he chooses his 12 apostles. And these 12 apostles become the new leadership structure for the church itself. Jesus is beginning a process of reframing and relaunching the movement of God in a different sort of way. And this is what's happening as we get ready to read this. What we're going to see today is Jesus sort of saying to the church, this is our core way of thinking. This is our way of believing. This is our operating norms. I had a chance this week to be part of the orientation of two new hires here at Grace. And one of the first things they do is they come and they sit in my office. And my hope is, through that conversation, I help them to understand what our culture is like. What, is the, what are the operating norms to be a co-worker here at Grace? How do we expect you to behave? How do we expect you to interact with other people on staff? It's part of the orientation process. And in many ways, that's what Jesus is doing. He's called his 12, and now he's doing this new orientation or new way of thinking. So, Luke 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 17, and this is a large section of scripture, and I wanted to teach through the whole thing because it's, this is one sermon. 
And sometimes we pull it apart, and I just I want you to hear the whole thing, and then I want you to, to help you to understand what Jesus is saying. So starting in verse 17, it says, And he, talking about Jesus, came down with them, the them or the twelve that he just chose after spending the night in prayer, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to hear in be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were, were cured, and all of the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when you are excluded and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, before behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so is their father did to the prophets. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. For you will receive your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so the fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do the same to them. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same demand. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High for. He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and put in your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told him a parable. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. He said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, and you do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For a tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bush. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and an evil person out of the evil treasure produces 
evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show them what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug a deep and laid a foundation in the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, he is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the streams broke against it, immediately it fell, fell in ruin and the, the ruin of the house was great. Let me pray. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. There's a lot in this passage of scripture that we just read. Help me to explain it to the best of my abilities with your Holy Spirit at work through me. Lord, we just ask that your word would be our rule and your spirit would be our guide. That we would leave here different than we came because we've interacted with the living God through his word, through his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So these opening verses, Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes. Now, I don't know about you, but for many of us, I think the Beatitudes are confusing. It's hard to understand what Jesus is saying in these. But it gets easier if you realize what Jesus is trying to do when he comes down off of the mountain and he really teaches his first full-on sermon to his disciples, at least the first one that we have in scriptures, is he is trying to change the worldview of the people who are listening to him. He is confronting the common way of thinking of a first century Jew. It is a clear process of saying, I want you to think differently. I want you to have a different worldview. You know what I mean by worldview? A worldview is a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. Simply put, your worldview is how you think the world works, what you think of God, how you think you are to interact with God, just as importantly, how you think God interacts with you, how you think people are supposed to interact with each other, how you think we're supposed to interact with the environment. All that makes up your worldview. We all have a worldview. And Jesus is saying, I am going to teach you in this moment how to have a different world view. The truth of the matter is what was relevant then to the people is relevant today. The fact is a first century believer, they were big time believers in karma. Now they didn't call it karma, but they believed in karma. You know what karma is? Karma is if I do good things, good things are going to happen to me. If I do bad things, then bad things are going to happen to me. There's this clear kind of uh, transactional nature to life. Now they, they never called it karma, so I understand that, but it, trust me, it was karma. And the fact of the matter is, we believe in karma too. That's why when something bad happens to you, the first thing you think is, what did I do to deserve this? Right? There's this, if I do the right things for God, then I can get the right things from God. We all sort of buy into at some level, just allow me to say this, we all buy into a transactional relationship with God. So for example, you may have even been taught this, but it's scary teaching. If you give your tithes and offering, God's going to give you back even more. That makes God transactional. If I give $10, I get back $100. 
And the passage is really clearly saying, no, I don't want you to give because you want a transaction for God. As a matter of fact, if that's your mindset, if your mindset is you're just making an an investment strategy, then it's not going to work out. And you're going to be disenchanted with God because he didn't fulfill his end of the transaction. He says, no, we give because God is God. We give because God gives us to us first. We give because it's an act of worship. We give because it's a privilege to give back to God not as a transactional nature, okay? And we're going to explain that just a little bit more as I get into the passage and and, and help you to unpack that. So, we have to rechange our worldview. One of the things that will help us to understand the Beatitudes is to broaden our understanding of what it means to be poor and what it means to be rich. If you're not careful, you read this, and what you're saying in your mind is, um, blessed are those who don't have a bank account, And cursed are those who have a big bank account. And I can tell you that is not what Jesus is teaching. This isn't about having money and not having money. This is actually a teaching about the oppressed and the oppressor. This is about the downtrodden, people who are are being oppressed and people who are the ones who are oppressing others. And at any given time, you could be either one of those two people. But if if you have that mindset, so we use this word poor this way all the time. So I don't know why we limit it when we read the scriptures to just money, but how often do you say to somebody who goes through a really difficult season, oh, poor Jim. His mom just died. Poor Jim. Or they're going through a health issue. You, you, we have empathy for them. So we use poor in a broader sense. And my encouragement to you when you read the Beatitudes, when you read this passage of Luke, is to broaden your understanding of what it means to be poor and what it means to be rich. So if poor is to be oppressed, and to be rich is to be an oppressor. Super important that we hold on to that, because it will make this entire thing make more sense. Jesus says, you think that if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're weeping, if you're oppressed, then you're cursed. But look at verse 20. He says, no, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are you when you weep. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. This only makes sense if you have a broader definition of what it means to be poor. What does it mean to be poor? It means to be oppressed. And he says, look, it's far better off for you to be oppressed than it is for you to be the oppressor. So he goes right into the woes. So what does he say? He says, woe to you if you are, verse 24, rich. Verse 25, woe to you if you are full now. Woe to you if you are laughing now. And verse 26, woe to you if all speak, people speak well of you. He is describing someone of power and influence who is wielding their power over somebody else. You're rich, you laugh, you have everything you need while people around you don't have what you need. You are oppressing other people. Now, let me just take an opportunity to step on your toes and step on my toes. We are all guilty of this on some level. We all take opportunities in our fallenness and our humanness to oppress other people. Sometimes we do it just because we know something other people don't know, or if we have something other people need. I mean, you see it with kids. I mean, I remember one of my sons, he like would bring uh, one of those $5 pizzas well, now he had the ability to lord over the other kids in the lunchroom because he had pizza slices. Or, I mean, we will use whatever we can to be above the other person. It's just in our human nature, and we just need to all own it. It can be the simplest things. We were talking between the service about the lifeguards at the park. 
right? They got a little bit of power. Well, they like to lord it over us adults sometimes, right? They, 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 now they have a position, they have an ability to, to lord over. So I just want you to kind of own that this is, this is a sermon for all of us. We all have these moments where we lord over other people. That's one of the reasons that we have this plurality of leadership at Grace, where we have elders that we put into place, and they are my boss, and I serve as one of the elders, but it's a way of of flattening the organization, of not having all the power reside in one place, because power can corrupt somebody. Look, I know that God has entrusted an important leadership role to me, but you know, the primary reason for that leadership role is to be a servant, not to lord over. So Jesus said the the, the rulers and the benefactors lord over, but it's not so with you. You're called as one to serve. So this is part of Jesus' teaching. You are not to be an oppressor over people. So Jesus is saying, I want to change your worldview. I don't want you to clamor for power and to be over other people. I want to change your way of thinking. As a matter of fact, he's saying, I am launching a new organization. It's called the church. And if you want to be a part of the church, these are the operating norms. You know what I mean by operating norms? This is what normal operation ought to look like. So the the first operating norm of this new organization called the church is that we are to be loving. We are to be loving. But once again, Jesus says, but not the way you think. You have this understanding of what it means to be loving, but I'm going to turn that understanding on its head. As a matter of fact, what I'm telling you is you have to love the unlovable. I was sitting with a friend on Friday, and he said to me, those who deserve love the least need love the most. Do we have that understanding in our minds? Jesus is talking to these oppressed people. The Jewish people are brutally oppressed by the Roman Empire. This is a a horrible time for the Jewish people. And Jesus says, and you got to put it in that context, verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is an abused, oppressed people. And Jesus is saying, I know. I know it's hard, but I want you to love them. Now the deal is we got to understand what the definition of love is. It's not the warm fuzzy. It's not that like attractional sort of love. It's not any of that. This is about how we move towards other people. This is about how we serve other people. This is about how we pray for other people. So it's not about feeling really good about that person. When someone is your oppressor or your abuser, you're probably not going to have warm affection for them, but that doesn't let you off the hook as to how you move toward them and how you pray for them. Jesus is saying, in my organization, if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my church, you have to love the people that oppose you. Look, I have trouble loving people who disagree with me let alone those who oppose me. This is hard stuff. This is not easy for us to grasp and hold on to. Now, I want to give just a little bit of clarity because whenever we teach anything like this, it's it's important that you hear this. You are not required to stay in an abusive relationship. You are not required to submit yourself to abuse. That is not what this passage is talking about. So if you are in a situation where someone is abusing you, you don't have to say, you can have clear boundaries. You can, you can, we can help you to that. We have a counseling center. We have a pastoral staff that can help you to think through what do the right boundaries look like for me. But here's what I can tell you. God wants you to pray for your abuser. And he doesn't want you to pray, Lord, would you strike my abuser down with lightning? 
that doesn't count as praying for your abuser. What he wants you to pray is, would you soften their heart? Would you meet them the way you've met me? Would you shower them with grace and mercy? You know how hard it is to pray for God to shower somebody who's, who's hurting you, to shower them with grace and mercy? Penny Blum taught me something a long time ago. She said, if you deny yourself the opportunity to pray for somebody, you deny yourself the opportunity to fall in love with them. It's a powerful thing. Jesus wanted us to pray for our enemies, to pray for our oppressors, to pray for our abusers, because it will soften your heart towards that person. That's God's kingdom. This is not normal thinking. This is not how the world wants you to think. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, I got a whole different worldview, and you have to think like me if you want to be a part of my kingdom. He says, my expectation, verse 35, is that you love your enemies, you do good, you lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. He says, be merciful, as my Father is merciful. Be merciful, be gentle, be good. Even if in your mind you believe this person does not deserve my kindness, be kind anyway. Remember how much love, how much mercy God has extended to you. And just so you know, when he says love your enemies, it's not a statement of exclusivity. He's not saying just love your enemies. It's sort of a way of saying love everyone. The assumption is you're going to love the people who aren't your enemies also. So this, you get what I'm saying? This is an all-encompassing that we are supposed to be marked by our ability to love others. So the first operating norm is that we're loving, and the second is that we're generous. Verse 30 says, give to anyone who begs from you, for if anyone takes away your goods, don't demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. That's the golden rule that's so famous. Verse 35, love your enemies again. Remember, Jesus is changing the way you're supposed to think. He's changing your worldview. You see, our worldview is if you have something I need, if you have something to give to me, then I will give something to you. As a matter of fact, sometimes you hear people say, if you've got nothing for me, don't expect anything from me. And the truth is, most of us, most of our actions moving towards people is because we want something back from them. So if I go home today and clean the house, I'm looking for something from Meg. <laughs> right? You can figure out what that might be, but whatever the case... I'm, I don't know that I ever do anything with pure motives. The point is that in our worldview, let's just be honest with ourselves, we tend to do things for people because we want things from people. And Jesus is saying, no, I got an idea. Let's not do anything for a transactional nature. Let's do it because that's how the Father moved towards you. And when you love people expecting nothing in return, you actually display the love of God to them. You show them God's love by doing it, look, this is hard stuff, right? Biblical generosity is giving sacrificially with no expectation of getting anything back. That's why you shouldn't tithe expecting to get a tenfold return. I give ten, I get back a hundred. No, don't do that. Give because God has given to you first. But then there's this crazy point, and I kind of wish Jesus had left this out of there because it kind of sounds like double talk, but he says, look at it. Look at verse 33. He says, but, but guess what? You still can't outgive God. Verse 30 says, give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We'll put it in your lap for with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. That's a picture of, of life in the marketplace. You would go and you'd buy popcorn or you would buy 
oil or you would buy seeds and there would be a container that holds it and the, 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 the merchant would pour the seed in there and it would fill up the container, but then they would shake it down so it would settle like the cereal in your box, how it settles to the bottom. And then they would fill it the rest of the way, but they wouldn't just fill it the rest of the way, they'd fill it so that it was overflowing and you'd get more than you wanted. And Jesus says, look, that's what's going to happen, but please don't let that be your motivation is what he's saying. Give, not expecting anything back, but just so you know, here's the secret, you're going to get something back anyway. It just shouldn't be our motivation. Chances are I will get something back, if nothing else, than just a pat on the back if I went home and cleaned the house. Meg's wondering, I wonder if he's planning on going home and cleaning the house. <laughs> yeah, kind of setting myself up here. So this leads to the third operating norm, right? We've got three, two of them so far. We're to be loving, we're to be generous, and we are to be merciful. To be merciful means to be full of mercy. That's not a trick question. It just sounded like one. Ready and willing to extend grace and forgiveness to others. Verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. That's a pretty high standard. Verse 37 says, judge not. says, forgive. Verse 38 says, give. So if there's one thing that I wish for our church, actually, if there's one thing I wish for the evangelical church in North America, is that we were merciful because we're not. We are a judging bunch of people. And people are watching us judge, and they are repulsed by the way we judge them. Sometimes I'm repulsed by the way we love them. Jesus said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin. The good news is you're off the hook. It's not your job to convict the world of sin. It's your job to love people into the kingdom of God. And this would radically transform the church. This would radically transform our reputation in North America if we understood this one truth, what it looks like to be merciful. Jesus is calling us to live into this. And I think about how different the church would be if we were known as loving gracious and merciful people, the unity that would exist in this place, how it would transform every aspect of what we do as a church. It would unleash the power of God in this place. Four operating norms. We are to be loving, we are to be gracious, we are to be merciful, and we are to be self-aware. When I think about these four operating norms, I think of them as like elements of a whole. They like fit together like fingers in a glove or, or whatever, a puzzle that comes together. And the, and the truth of the matter is you can't really do the other three unless you exercise number four. The self-awareness is what unleashes this loving, gracious, merciful spirit in us. Jesus knows this, so in verse 41 he says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself have a log. Some of your translations may say plank uh, in your own eye. And then he says, You hypocrite. Take the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take a speck out of your brother's eyes. How many of you ever heard this sentence? I don't go to church anymore because the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, you might have even said that a few times in your life. And I guess Jesus is saying you're right. The church is full of hypocrites. We're a bunch of people walking around with logs in our eyes instead of helping our friends to get the specks out of their eyes. I have a homework assignment for you. I want you to go to three or four of your closest friends, and I want you to ask this question. 
what's it really like to be on the other end of me? What's it really like to sit across the table from me? And here's the deal. If everything you get is warm and fuzzy, then the answer is you're intimidating. They are afraid to tell you the truth because we all have junk. We all have difficulty. We all have blind spots. And if you can't get enough people in your life who can say, well, it'll be perfectly honest with you, you overpower me with words. When you disagree with me, you power up and you shut me down. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Ask yourself, what's it like to live in my house? What's it like to be my kid? What's it like to be my spouse? This idea of self-examination changes everything, and we are not very good at it. Jesus says, hey, you, you got a plank sticking out of your eye, and you're worried about a speck in your neighbor's eye. So I have a little visual for you. This is a plank, and this is a speck. If you were close, you could see it. You can see it, right? There's a little speck. I taped it on this little piece of paper because I don't know how to hold up a speck. Plank, speck. Speck. Okay, it's not very hard, right? You guys learn fast. Speck, plank. Now I need a married couple, and I think the Budex would be perfect for this. Can you come down here? Yeah. Thinking. So I'm going to give you each a plank, a log, whatever it is, and I would like you to hold it as if it were coming out of your eye. I would prefer that you didn't actually put it in your eye because we don't have a medical team waiting. So you can just kind of hold it on your cheek as if the plank was in your eye. Is that clear? Who puts that in safety glasses? Construction guy. Also, it really is wood. It's cedar, so it's got splinters. So try not to rub, like, slide your hand on it because it'll give you a splinter, and then we'll have to actually do the actual part of the passage where we remove splinters. All right, so I want you to stick it out of your eye right now. Okay? Now I want you to hug each other. Just have an intimate conversation. That's good. That's good. Maybe a kiss. Yeah, it's pretty tough. You got to be pretty careful here. Yeah. All right. That's enough. You can see, ooh, you almost hit him. You can see the, the danger here. Really, thank you. We can thank them. I wanted you to see it because I want you to, to know what Jesus is doing. He's using this beautiful parable to help us to understand what happens here. And there's, there's two takeaways that are obvious from this. When we try to help somebody and we have a plank in our eye, we do more damage than good. Right? It could have been very easy for them to actually do damage to one another. Imagine trying to be intimate with a plank sticking out of your eye. It amounts to just a, a club kind of whacking each other. And I have this picture of us as a church. We're just kind of, we're walking around with these planks and we're just, we're beating on one another. And really the picture of a healthy marriage is where both of the two parties that are up here, when, when Jen and Ryan are both concentrating on just removing the plank out of their own eyes so that they don't inflict harm on the other person. But the second thing that, that is so clear, and Jesus knows it, is that when you engage in personal plank removal, it's a full-time job, or at least for me, it's a full-time job. As soon as I think I got the plank out of my eye, God shows me another plank in my eye, right? And, and so what happens is I am concentrating on how I fall short of the glory of God, not how Meg falls short of the glory of God or my kids fall short of the glory of God. And then I realize how much grace and love God has extended to me, and I, I experience the mercy of God in my life. And the truth of the matter is it is pretty hard to be judgmental of other people when you are doing personal plank removal. It's almost impossible. 
And so, I don't know if we ever get to the speck removal part. Maybe we do. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus is saying, if you just take some time and you just reflect on your own stuff, I'm going to show you, you got enough stuff to work on. And I'm going to help you to work on it. And that's the beauty. So we sang that song, we go from glory to glory. This is how we go from glory to glory. When we allow the Spirit of God to to bring about self-examination and show us our junk, and we're willing to get rid of our own junk, then we become more and more. What's, What's our mission statement here at Grace? We are... We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. Jesus is loving, generous, merciful. And when we see our own junk, when we submit to the work of God in our life, of transforming us to be more and more like his son, we are far less likely to judge others. I don't know about you, but I look at the list. Four operating norms were to be loving, generous, merciful, and self-aware. And I think to myself, man, that is hard stuff. That's hard to do. As a matter of fact, it's so hard to do, you can't do it. On your own, you cannot do this. The only way to be loving and generous and merciful and truly self-aware is to have the Spirit of God in you, working in you, revealing what he needs to reveal in you, and leaning into the power that comes from the Spirit. Jesus is teaching this amazing sermon on this new way of thinking, new operating norms. And in verse 43, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The good person out of the good treasured up in his heart produces good. The only thing that makes us good is Jesus. You cannot do this on your own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. Four operating norms that we would be loving, generous, merciful, self-aware. What if? What if we were known for that? I just think about the impact it would have in our marriages, the impact it would have in our workplace, the impact it would have on our parenting, the impact it would have on our unity, the impact it would have on our missional calling, the impact it would have on the community. It would change this church and it would change the world if we just lived into those four operating norms. The unity in this place would be palatable. People would come and they would experience something. They wouldn't even know what it was, but they would know it because they bump into the living God. It would be a powerful thing. So here's my question for you. Is it your desire to be more like Jesus? Is it your desire to be loving and generous and merciful and self-aware? I'm not asking you if you're there, because I'm not. I'm asking you, is it your desire to go there? And if it is, I'm going to just ask you to stand. Right where you are, just stand and allow me to pray over you and to pray for us as a church. I'm standing with you. I am standing with you. 
I want to be more loving. I want to be more generous. I want to be more merciful. I want to be more self-aware. I want all that God has for me in his kingdom, and I want all that God has for each one of you so that corporately we can be the church that God has called us to be. So, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would do the only thing your Holy Spirit can do and bring about that transformation in our lives. I pray that we would submit ourselves to this process. I love that song that we go from glory to glory, but when we sing it, I just realize we have to submit ourselves to the process. We have to be willing to let your word of God do surgery in the deepest places of our soul. We have to be willing to let go of those things that we hold on to that are strongholds in our lives. Lord, help us to see what are the rocks that are in the stream that keep the spirit of God from flowing in our lives and help us to remove those rocks so that you can move freely in us. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a church that is loving, that is generous, that is merciful, that we would be people that are self-aware. We would inflict pain on people when we think we're trying to do good because we got a club sticking out of our eyes. Help us to be the church you've called us to be at Morassa 994. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Be blessed. Have a great 4th of July. You're welcome.